scripture reading this afternoon comes from two places in scripture. First, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, and we will read the verses 7 through 15. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 7. This comes immediately after a thousand-year reign of the saints with Christ. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then let's also turn back to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And we'll read that psalm. This is a psalm of David. he writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into, the deep, into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. 
When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies." You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that, I am, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it be a, become a trap Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So far, the word of God. The reading and the psalms that we have sung are in connection with the Lord's Day at which we have arrived, which is Lord's Day 19b. I apologize for not getting that in your handout, but you should see it on the board. Lord's Day 19b, that is question answer 52. There the question is, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. So far, 
the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the last time that I preached on the Catechism, which was some time ago now, we, we began the transition from what we as Christians believe about history in the past to history in the present. And I said then, Christianity is a historical religion, meaning that part of what it means to be a Christian is to believe certain things about history. And that doesn't just include history in the past, but also history in the present. And now today, we begin to look at what Scripture teaches us about history in the future. That's where the Apostles' Creed goes in this Lord's Day this afternoon. The Apostles' Creed's line about, about future history is quite short. It simply says, Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. So this afternoon, what we want to do is we want to see what the Apostles' Creed means by that and where Scripture teaches it. And then I hope to also have some time to stop and think about how we as Christians today, uh, how that impact how that truth has an impact on us as Christians today. And there's no question that the Bible does teach that Jesus Christ will return bodily and will judge the living and the dead. This this expectation is written all over the New Testament. Just to give a few examples, uh, we saw last time how when Christ ascended into heaven, already there the angels made it clear that Christ would return. As the disciples were looking up into heaven, they saw two men in white robes who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that's already right there at the time of Christ's ascension. A few chapters later, you find Peter speaking to a group of Gentiles. And there Peter says to the Gentiles, This is Acts 10. He says, He, that's Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And you find Paul saying the same thing just a few chapters later. Acts 17 is the famous moment when Paul was in Athens. And there he says to the Greeks gathered there, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance by raising Him from the dead. So, right from the beginning, the apostles recognized and taught that there was a direction to Christ's reign in heaven. It was going somewhere, and it would culminate in Christ's return. So ever since Christ ascended into heaven, we saw this last time, history took a new turn. It made a sharp, it turned it sharply in a new direction, and now it has a destination to which it gets closer every single day. Christ is building his kingdom on earth, and that means the day is coming when Christ will return to judge the earth. Once he has gathered his church, he will return, he will cause the dead to rise, and he will judge them all, those who loved him and those who hated him. 
And that's why in, in the account in Acts 17 in Athens, Paul's warning there is so severe. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because that day is coming when he will judge the world by this man. History is very quickly running towards that day of judgment. And everyone who is confronted by the kingdom of Christ through the preaching of the gospel will be called to, to give account on whether or not they believed. They will either repent and believe now in this life or they will find themselves on the wrong side of judgment on the final day. Well, what will happen then on that day of judgment? Here's what scripture teaches. We saw some of it in, in Revelation. First, every person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they will have to give an account. And that includes us believers. The Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then a couple verses later he says, so then each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. And then we can look at the scene in Revelation 20 that we, we read together. It shows us what that day will be like. And if you want, you can turn there again to Revelation 20 to follow along. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And that, of course, refers to Christ. From his presence, earth, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Now in this passage, there's, there's two sets of books. There are the books that are opened in verse 12, which are the books that contain every word, every thought, every action that was ever committed. The books that the dead are judged by. They contain all of our works, all of our words, perhaps even all of our thoughts. The Lord Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's, that's then the one book. And, and scripture doesn't say exactly what, what level of detail will be in that book, but we as Christians should, should certainly be prepared to have our entire lives, including even our entire thoughts, read aloud on that day. The things that we have done that we never wanted anyone to know about, we should be prepared to have those read aloud. It's one of the reasons why Christians today confess their sins. They know that those sins will be will be made known one way or another. That's the one book. Then there is another book, and that is the book of life. And that book contains the names of those who believed in the Savior that God sent, namely Jesus Christ. These are those who, during their lives on earth, confessed their sins, repented of their sins, and put their hope in Christ. And it says in, in the last verse in that chapter, if anyone's name is not found in that book, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. God's word is not at all ambiguous about the reality of hell. There are so many verses that warn us about the reality of hell. It's one of the clearest doctrines in Scripture, no matter how much it might be 
controversial or, or disagreed with today. It's very hard to accept, no doubt, but it's not unclear. And God's word, God's word teaches that hell is both terrible and eternal. The Lord Jesus himself spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he tells us at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as an experience of outer darkness, utter loneliness, and distance from God and other people. And elsewhere in Revelation, it's described as as so terrible that those facing it will long for death, for rocks to fall on them and crush them. And as terrible as it is, Scripture also teaches unambiguously that it is eternal, Jesus himself warned about this many times over. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it's better for you to enter life with one hand than to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, in Revelation, we read that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. There's no notion at all that anyone can ever pay their way out. This is the reality of hell that Scripture teaches very clearly. And that's why the gospel calls us, why Paul in, in Acts 17 too, called the people to repent now, to, to put our trust in Christ now. It's not, a, it's not an insincere call. It's a simple call. Repent, believe, while there is still time. And the Lord Jesus promises, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. But that day of judgment is quickly coming. History rushes forward toward that day as Christ already now builds his church or or builds his kingdom and gathers his church. The gospel stands before all of us right now, calling us to repent, confronting us with our sin. The time for repentance is right now. That's why we are told over and over again about the fact that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. It's a call to action every time Scripture tells us about it. Well, when, when we reflect on, on this reality, I imagine that it, it's hard for many of us, maybe most of us, to be comforted by the knowledge that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And, and the reason I mention that is because that's the way that the question is worded in the catechism. It's not, what warning is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? But what comfort is it to you that Christ will do so? Now, for some Christians, it's hard to be comforted by this simply because they know that they have not yet repented of their sin and they are not yet trusting in Christ. And so for those who who know that they are living in sin, this, this knowledge of Christ's return isn't intended to be comforting. It's intended to be a warning. But for those who, who do struggle against their sin, who do struggle but, but do put their faith and trust in Christ, the Catechism does offer a helpful reminder. The knowledge of Christ's return is a comfort. And it's a comfort in the first place because the very one who will sit on that white throne to whom we will have to give an account is Jesus Christ 
the very same person who bore the penalty of God for your sin and my sin. That's the person before whom we will have to stand. He is going to be our judge. God has given all judgment to him. He gets to make the call. And that's incredibly, or it should be incredibly comforting for us because he's the one who suffered and died the, the horrible death on the cross for your sin and for my sin. He's exactly the person we should want to be sitting on that throne. And already now, in this life here on earth, we, we get to enjoy relationship with him our entire lives long. And so that's why we take great comfort in the words of John 6, where Jesus says, All whom the Father gives to me, they will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That ought to be a comfort for each of us. But there's more to say still about the comfort of Christ's return and and how the knowledge of Christ's return impacts us. Notice that the Catechism doesn't just say that it's comforting that Christ will be our judge and and therefore uh, the the one who, who bore our judgment will surely spare us, but it's also comforting that he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation and will take me and his chosen ones to himself in heavenly joy and glory. Now my question for you is, Are you comfortable with saying that that is a comfort to you? That Christ will cast all his enemies and your enemies into hell? Are you comfortable saying, that's a comfort for me? I think many of us, when we, when we read this, we, we almost feel hesitant and, and almost even guilty. Like, I'm not supposed to feel this way about my enemies. This almost feels vengeful. Like, I, I don't... I don't feel like I'm supposed to want him to cast my enemies into hell. And surely any Christian who recognizes himself as a sinner does feel some degree of discomfort with that statement. Is it right for me to be comforted by the knowledge of what Christ will do to his enemies when I myself deserve that same judgment? Well, that's why I chose Psalm 69 as one of our readings Uh, this afternoon, Psalm 69 reflects that same emotion, that same sense of comfort that you find here in the Catechism at the very thought of Christ destroying his enemies. And perhaps you felt some of that same discomfort when you read Psalm 69 together. What do we as Christians do with a psalm like this? Well, it might help if you follow along, turning to, to Psalm 69 so we can give it our attention. This, this psalm is, is written by, by David. And in this, in this psalm, numerous times he pleads his cause before God. And he acknowledges that, that he's not a perfect man. He, he admits that before God. You can see that, for example, in, in verse 5. He says, Oh God, you know my folly. You know the wrongs uh, that I've done. They're not hidden before you. But at the same time, he also acknowledges that he is being persecuted without cause, unjustly. He says in verse 4, must I restore what I did not steal? In fact, he says it's for the very name of God that I am being persecuted, that I bear reproach. He says in verse 7, it is for your sake I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face 
or verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. And then in the middle of these persecutions, horrible, unjust persecutions, he turns to God in prayer and cries out for deliverance and for God's vengeance. That's part of his prayer, that God would bring vengeance on his enemies. Verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Can we sing a song like that? Is it right for Christians to pray a prayer like that? And this is especially a hard question when we're confronted by the Lord Jesus' own words. And for example, the Sermon on the Mount where he says... You should love your enemies and you should pray for those who persecute you. What do we Christians do with a psalm, a prayer like this? Does Jesus contradict David? Well, it's interesting to notice that Psalm 69 is quoted in the New Testament no less than four times, including quotations of these difficult verses. In fact, in at least three separate occasions, this psalm is quoted as the prayer of the Lord Jesus himself. And there's several other allusions to the Lord Jesus, like uh, that of him drinking vinegar um, to, to quench his thirst. And never once do we get any indication at all in the New Testament that, that the authors of the Gospels are ashamed of this psalm or the emotions in it. And that's important for us to recognize. The New Testament nowhere criticizes a psalm like this or says you're not supposed to think this way anymore. Nowhere does Scripture teach that. And you can see this same prayer, this same cry for justice in the authors of the Catechism. They found comfort in the knowledge that God, that, that Christ would cast all his and their enemies into condemnation. You don't get for a moment that, uh, the impression that the catechism is, is embarrassed about finding comfort in, in that fact, even though it might make us today somewhat uncomfortable. And so we might be wondering, well, how does this then square with what the Lord Jesus taught, that we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? How does this square with what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19? Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Well, the difference is this. Consider how Paul finishes that command. Beloved, never avenge yourselves because it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You see, it's the knowledge of God's perfect, righteous judgment that enables us as Christians to not seek vengeance ourselves against our enemies. And it also keeps us then from taking vengeance at the wrong times and for the wrong reasons. You see, the reality is when we take revenge, when we seek revenge against others, 
We don't do so more often than not out of a love for the honor of God or for God's name. When we take vengeance against others, we do so because they have hurt or offended us. They have, they have dishonored us. It isn't because we love God's honor and justice. Otherwise, we would be equally upset every time that his honor is, is violated by others who have nothing to do with us. But we lash out. We seek revenge against others when they have offended us and our honor. But Christ, you see, calls us to die to ourselves. And that also means to die to that desire to seek vengeance against those who would hurt or offend merely us and not God. Christ calls us to repent then of the fact that our own honor more often than not tends to matter more to us than God's honor. And he calls us to begin honoring and worshiping him instead of ourselves. The fact is our self-worship, the fact that our honor matters more to us than God's honor, that was so offensive to God that he sent Christ to die the horrible death on the cross for exactly that reason. So to be a Christian then is to recognize that the greatest offense ever committed is never between me and my neighbor because my honor and my worthiness is minuscule in comparison with God's. The greatest offense is always the dishonoring of God's name when his honor is not given as he's due. So what this means for us now as Christians then is we relinquish every thought of revenge because we realize that when others sin against us, the great tragedy is not that they have dishonored us, but that they have dishonored God and violated his standard of justice. And so Christ calls us then to see things as God sees them, to to think God's thoughts after him. The offenses that we suffer are very small in comparison with those that God suffers, both from them and from us. And, And then when we reflect on that, and we consider the wrath of God in store for such people, when we know that God will bring perfect justice on their heads, and that apart from their salvation, they will suffer an eternity of hell for their sin. If we really understand how great that judgment is, we cannot help but feel compassion for our fellow human beings. Who could, who could not pray for their enemies when they really understand the depth of the wrath of God? But that still leaves us with Psalm 69. The reality is the, the righteous will suffer injustice. Scripture is very honest about that, compassionately honest about that. They do suffer horrible injustice. The godly do suffer, but when they do, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, they don't lash out against their enemies. And you see that even in Psalm 69. He does not take vengeance against his enemies. He puts his trust in God for God to avenge them. They know then, the righteous know that when that that God is the one who is wronged far more than us and God is the one who will bring justice far worse than any justice we ourselves could think up of.
So when the godly then suffer injustice, they don't lash out. They don't seek revenge. Instead, they do what you see here in Psalm 69. They cry out to God to do what only God can do. When we suffer horrible injustice, as so many Christians are suffering right this very minute, it is natural and it is right to cry out to God to avenge us, to cry out to God for justice. There are times when Christians like David experience such horrible injustice that their broken hearts just cry out to God, bring justice on the heads of these people who violate your standard of justice and think nothing of it. Pour out your indignation on them, as he says in Psalm 69. It's like what the saints in heaven themselves cry out in Revelation 6. They, they cry out from under the, uh, under the throne, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There's no contradiction between loving your enemies while at the same time crying out to God for justice. That's the human experience. In other Psalms, David talks about how they have repaid my love with evil, therefore God bring justice on them. He practiced love. He showed good, what we might call Christian love to his enemies, and yet he cries out to God at the same time for justice. There's nothing that so sickens the soul as seeing and experiencing injustice. It's true in North America we're blessed to experience very little of that justice. But we must not ever dare to look down on those Christians in former generations or around the world today who do suffer that injustice and cry out to God for vengeance. The tragedy is that we are not offended enough when God's people are tortured, abused, humiliated, and killed. Just this past week, in all the hysteria about Trump and and North Korea, another series of testimonies came out from the Christians in North Korea about the kinds of abuses and tortures that they suffer there day after day. Some of them are called every night to appear again before the prison guards for another beating, lest it be their children instead. May we never look down in our minds on Christians that know how to cry out to God for justice like David did in this psalm. Such injustice is unbearable. And that's why David writes a psalm like this. And that's why the Lord Jesus himself could take a psalm like this on his own lips. He was thinking God's thoughts after him. People like, like the Lord Jesus and people like, like David are not looking for personal vengeance like unregenerate people do when their own pride is violated. No, they're bearing up under unspeakable injustice and directing their prayers instead to God. Oh God, have vengeance for us. Vindicate us. Pour out your wrath on your enemies. Add to them punishment upon punishment for what they have done and what they continue to do. So Christians should be comforted by the knowledge that Christ will return and judge the living and the dead. He will cast 
all his and our enemies into everlasting condemnation. This is the world that the catechism was also born out of, as so many believers in the time of the Reformation were burned at the stake or or had their parents or their children executed for the sake of the gospel. It should be our prayer too then, whenever we suffer injustice that's beyond our ability to bear, that God would bring the justice that only he can bring. And so that's why Paul does say this in, in Romans 12, verse 9, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's the knowledge that the day of judgment is coming and coming quickly. That's what gives us the strength to not seek revenge here and now. God's justice is far more perfect than ever ours could be. The punishment of hell is far more severe than anything we could ever think up. And it lasts forever. So it's the comfort of many Christians around the world today, and it has been throughout the centuries, and it should be our comfort too, that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Every injustice, every evil, every abuse, every torture is written down in his books. They will not be forgotten. Those who have oppressed and abused us or others in this life will not escape his justice even if they manage to escape on earth. That is a comforting thought to anyone who has endured real persecution, real serious injustice. It should always be a comforting thought to us, a a thought that carries us through those times of sufferings and persecutions. And it may well be God's will to bring us through such times. And that's the comfort then that that God offers also to our fellow Christians who have endured such things, who even now endure such things. We ourselves right now do not experience that same injustice and cruelty, but let us always be a people that remembers those who do and cries out together with them, Oh God, bring vengeance on the heads of our persecutors. I know, I know this is a heavy message to bring right before a baptism. We can thank God in all of this as we reflect on the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, that little Jacob right now doesn't have to worry about these things. For now, he's in the arms of his parents. He will learn in time what injustice is, and he will learn too in time to cry out to God, his Savior. And so we baptize him because Christ, who will come to judge the living and the dead, has claimed little Jacob as his own. It's true his heart is as fallen, it's as wicked as the rest of ours, but Christ has placed his name on him. We can say, it's not wrong to say, in a very real sense, God has written his name in the book of life. It's a book of the covenant. It's not a book of election. There are names that are blotted out, and there are names that are written in in scripture. Jacob's name belongs there in the book of life. And so little Jacob's story is already now, even though he's just a few months old, it's already a story that's filled with the riches of God's grace. May he then too come to love his Savior with his whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength, so that he too would join the company of the saints who cry out, Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen. Let us respond by singing some verses from that psalm, Psalm 69, stanzas 7 through 11.